Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glazer Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glazer Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glazer Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glazer Podcast to start listening. No! Oh my God! How could he do that? Are you on drugs? What? Charles Darwin. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brabber, and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today. We are recording fresh off of what was a massive Game 3 in the Eastern Conference Finals, a huge win for the Bucs, and a really deflating loss for the Hawks in which it felt like nothing could go right for them down the stretch from Trey tweaking an ankle, Bogey not being able to hit a shot, to just a masterclass from Chris Middleton. Everything was just going the Bucs way, and nothing was really going right for the Hawks. So a massive change in momentum in that series. And we're going to discuss that today, but we're also, of course, going to discuss the Western Conference Finals, and we're going to do it all by giving out our awards from each series. And this is something we've been doing throughout the playoffs at about the midway point. We hand out our awards to highlight some key performers, maybe some underperformers, and we give out an MVP for each team of each series. I don't want to start with the MVP, though. I literally just want to talk about Bogdan Bogdanovich. I don't have an award name for him, but I'm giving him whatever the disappointing award is because... We talked about this last show. We've been touching on it throughout the playoffs that he just has not been at the level you expect from him, has not been at the level that the Hawks would probably need from him. And now today, he goes 3 of 16, physically looked maybe a little bit sharper, but could not knock down an open shot. Logan, what do you have to say about what we saw from Bogey tonight and what we've seen from him throughout this series where it just has not gotten better? No, it's just so disappointing, and there's no one else here in Atlanta to pick up the slack, which I think is the biggest thing. It's it's not going to be Gallinari. It's not going to be Lou Will. It's not going to be any of these other guys that we can hope and pray for. Uh, it's got to be Bogey. He's got to be the guy that wills this team to success when... Like, I, I think part of this last game, I want to contextualize, it's a lot on Trey. You miss a lot of those shots. You take a lot of deep threes there towards the end. You can shoot yourself out of a ball game, especially when the Bucks can get into a fast break offense so quick off of those misses late. But it's not at all, all on Trey. Like he played so well in these first third three quarters. We just needed someone to help propel them to the finish line. And that has consistently been the problem through these playoffs. It was <laughs> I feel like we do this every show. Carson throws out a, a really good set of stats for what Bogey did towards the end of this season. A really nice Really nice stretch to close the year. 
we were hopeful, and this Hawks team just needs some guy to help propel them to the finish line. And it has not been bogey this entire playoffs. It has not been bogey in this series. And it's evident. It is evident three games in that they desperately need him to win this series. I didn't know after game one if I thought that was the case. I thought Trey maybe could do this by himself, but Mm -hmm. no. The Hawks desperately need bogey to perform. Uh, Carson, I know this is something uh, you're very passionate about. I'll turn it back over to you, dog. Yeah, I'm not even going to throw out the impressive stats that, as you touched on, I like to give every time just to make sure that everybody understands how great bogey was down the stretch of this regular season. I'm just going to give you his stats from this series, which is 6.7 points per game on 25% from the field and 25% from three. And you mentioned it. They need people to pick up for Trey. And the thing is, I don't agree with you that nobody was there to do it. I think that we saw admirable efforts from John Collins being that creator out of the post when he got his touches down there. And he wasn't able to play a full normal minute load in this one because of the foul trouble, but he had some big time tough buckets out of that mid-range area, and he has been consistently great at doing that throughout these playoffs. He's been the most efficient post scorer in basketball in the postseason, and Gallo is another guy who's been phenomenal operating out of that mid-post area. Yes, Logan, they're tough shots, but he made a lot of them today, and he kept them in this game with those 18 points, and I think he's been an 87th percentile post scorer throughout these playoffs where just nobody can really affect him there. And there were a couple tough possessions for him down the stretch where you see he just can't create separation. When he tries to attack the bucket, sometimes he just loses the handle. He can't explode past anybody and you're barreling into traffic. But he did his job well. And if Bogey could be what we expect from him, getting into the mid-range, knocking down floaters, creating shots for others, that would be phenomenal. But on a day like this, you just needed him to make a few open threes. Two of 10 from deep. And again, 25% on the series as a whole. It's been a disappointing postseason, but we are now at a different level. And what's crazy is, as mental as this seems to be, he was not lacking for confidence as far as literally just shooting the ball today. He was willing to pull in tight windows and got a lot of open looks, didn't hesitate on them. None of them fell, though. And this trend is beyond established at this point. We don't need to spend 20 minutes on it again. But if this continues, they're not winning this series. And this was just the most frustrating iteration of it because you think every game, maybe this is the one in which he breaks out of the slump and it was not today yet again. When I thought, I think you touched on another key part of this for Bogey too. It's that he's getting the same looks that he used to. Like, it's not like he's Mm -hmm. not getting to his spots. He's, uh, I distinctly remember the possession where I thought he was going to flip it on like you're talking about. Uh, They switched Bobby Portis onto him like they've been doing all series long and I see him step back and he puts it up and I'm thinking, oh my God. That, that looks like old bogey. He's back. He's going to nail this. And it rims out. And that's just kind of an it's kind of an allegory for how this entire postseason has been for bogey. It's He's so close. And I don't know. Like you said, tonight it didn't look mental. It just looked like his shot was just that much off. Yeah, which is devastating for this team. And I think you made a good point about Trey also. Because he has played fine in this series. I mean, his raw numbers are certainly impressive. Game two sucked, but a monster game one performance and another big scoring night here in game three with 35. But I think that we are seeing a trend from him that is not promising and that he has been so much more reliant in this series on the tough shots from beyond the arc. In game one, the highlight of the performance was not even necessarily just threes, but a lot of long step back twos and whatnot again. And today was kind of a similar story, but in game one, we saw him almost lose them that game by missing six of those in that fourth quarter. And then tonight, maybe part of that towards the end was due to just being physically limited, but we didn't see him get into that floater area 
where he is so deadly both as a scorer and as a facilitator. And I'll give some stats just to contextualize that because we always talk about it. Trey is most lethal when he is inside the arc, when he is collapsing defenses, not when he is beyond the arc, as great of a shooter as he can be in spots. And if you look at his performance throughout these playoffs against the Knicks, he was taking eight threes a game, 7.4 free throws a game. Against the Sixers, he was taking nine threes a game, 10 free throws a game. And against the Bucks, he's been up at 12 threes a game, by far a high, and seven free throws, which is the low of those series. And I think that with that, you've seen not only the diminishing of the easy buckets, but I think there's a reason that he's had by far his least significant playmaking impact, where he's at six assists a game and has actually had more turnovers than assists or as many turnovers as assists in the last two games. And it's because when he stays beyond the arc, he is at best a one-on-one scorer, and it's up to him to make or miss a shot. He's not feeding people with those easy lobs. He's not finding shooters as reliably. And he can still do that better than most, but what makes him such a transcendent offensive engine is the playmaking and the pressure he exerts on a defense time and again, getting to line for those easy points, getting to that floater area where he's a 50% shooter. And even though he, again, had the 35 points tonight, he didn't have that kind of pronounced impact on the game, even when he did look like himself physically. It was a lot from beyond the arc, and I just don't think he can play that way and have his maximum impact and lead this team to win because they need him to be damn near perfect. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, they it's what he did perfect in that first game. He was attacking that floater. He was getting to his spots. I want to ask you, though, Carson, because you talked a lot about uh, Brooke Lopez and how he was playing him situationally in that first game. I thought we saw a drastic improvement in game two. I thought they played him so much better. Do you think the reason he was hesitant to get into the lane and attack as much was because of the adjustments that they've made? Or do you think this is just, I don't know, Trey wants to play hero ball? I think it is partly Brooke. I think it is partly Drew, who has been really good in this series. And part of it is, I think, what you mentioned. It's the shot that is always there for him. Nobody is going to guard him tightly from 30-something feet out. And this is always the double-edged sword with him. It's he can make those shots more than most people. So sometimes he wants to take them a lot more than anybody else. And not only are they relatively low percentage, they lead into long rebounds, which leads into transition, which is the area in which Milwaukee is deadliest. They take his teammates out of the game. They don't put that kind of same pressure on the defense. Like There are just so many compounding factors that say those 30-plus footers need to be chosen wisely. Maybe when he's really feeling it, go for it, because sometimes he is just unconscious. But again, 12 threes a game, half of your shots basically is too many. It's limiting his playmaking impact. It's limiting his efficiency as a scorer. And... He just can't be anything less than outstanding every time out if the Hawks are going to win this series. So, I think that that's what we have to say on that. Let's get now into official awards. We'll start with your MVP. Who is your MVP of this series for the Hawks thus far? Uh, My MVP for the Hawks, I I would have to be either Trey or maybe John Collins. Uh, They've both been... Collins has been stupid efficient when he's been out there on the floor. Uh, Also, maybe... I don't know. It's weird because I don't want to give all of the defensive. Uh, they've been a stalwart to Giannis, but I want to give some defensive credit to John Collins. I also want to give defensive credit to Clint Capello. So I guess it's a bit of the Hawks post defense. I'll give a little bit of that to Capella and Collins, and because I think for I think it's foolish to give this to anyone other than Trey on the Hawks. But we don't want to always mm-hmm. give it to the best guy. So I'll go with Collins and Capella uh, off the short roll. They've been the big bodies, and I also on this on the Hawks post defense. 
I really liked what we saw it on Yeko Okongwu tonight, man. Like, just in the few possessions on Giannis. I know that it's, like, typical and we've loved, like, everybody calling people Giannis stoppers. You know, we hyped up Nick Claxton. We hyped up other guys. I don't know, dude. Onyeka genuinely looked like he could be that. Like, he's... Because when Giannis gets on Gallo or when Giannis gets on John Collins, yeah, they're strong and they're going to fight and they're going to play hard. They're not physical enough to actually stop him. Giannis came to a complete stop at the free throw line and just had to reset on offense when Onyeka switched on to him. And not many guys can do that. So I'd say Giannis has still got his because you cannot completely X him out. He's going to get his mismatches on defense, on the Gallos, on bogeys, and he's a good post scorer. But... They've kept him at bay to keep the Hawks in every game in this series thus far, except for game two. So I'll go with the Hawks post-defense on Giannis uh, and attribute that to uh, Capella, Collins, and a little bit of the big O. I think they need to give him more minutes uh, in the rest of this series if he keeps uh, Dean up Giannis like he did. Onyeko Kongwu has played 8.4 minutes a game this series, scored 2.7 points a game, and I want to give him my MVP. It's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. But, dude, my love for the Big O has been reinvigorated, man. Like, the fact that he is now carving out legit minutes in the playoffs where for so much of the regular season he was struggling to break into that rotation or to earn any significant playing time, certainly, he was electric tonight. Like, sure, he didn't change the game, but you saw his mobility shine on defense. You saw the versatility there on full display, what he can ultimately be as that kind of switchable five. You mentioned doing a great job on Giannis. And offensively, dude, first of all, massive poster off of a lob, knocks down a floater, and if I'm not mistaken, threw a lob in that short roll area as well. Like, this was an all-around awesome game from Onyeka that, sure, maybe doesn't matter all that much for the context of this series, but gives a reason for optimism long-term. Part of the reason I wanted to start talking about bogey and some of the struggles with this team is I don't know that there is a clear-cut MVP right now. Game two, everything went wrong for them, and it's really tough to give anybody credit for that game. And then tonight, I thought Gallo was really good, and I thought Collins was really good. So I guess I would divvy it up between the two of them. Trey, as you mentioned, obviously by so far their best player in this series in any game, even when he is 5 of 23, generally, because of his playmaking impact. He's their best guy. But you know what? I want to get creative with the MVP here, and I will say, I think that as alarming as that Game 2 loss may have been, this one hurts a lot more. Because Game 2, it was just like nothing was going right. In Game 3, you were in control of this game. You had people around Trey stepping up with Collins, with Gallo. You were knocking down your shots from beyond the arc. You had it, and then it just slipped away at the hands of the other team. We obviously are just speculating when it comes to Trey's injury because we don't know the extent of it. I mean, he looked a little bit off. And by the way, let's make a quick case for robot refs here. If somebody's flying around in the air on uh, some hoverboard and they're a robotic creature that is calling the games perfectly, might I add, you can't step on their foot and tweak your ankle, all right? That's the future of basketball and officiating. I mean, what does this mean? Because obviously if Trey is not himself, as we've touched on, the mountain the Hawks have to climb is massive. But what sort of your reaction to just seeing that he wasn't 100% himself and what are your expectations based on that going forward? I mean, he definitely looked hindered. Uh, He was hobbling up and down the floor trying to get back on offense and defense. He looked like he had lost a little juice on his three-pointer as well. He was short on a lot of threes from then on out. Um, I think you said it. I think you hit the big part of this. If Trey is not here... 
the Hawks are going to have to rely on, like, either one, Bogey, as we've touched on, who has been completely unreliable this postseason, or, like, Lou Williams to run your offense and go out and win you a playoff game. You know what? Yeah, I, I love Lou. I don't think the Hawks have a chance. I don't think I'm out of line by uh, <laughs> by saying the Hawks don't really have a chance if Trey isn't healthy. Um, no, they're completely screwed. This will be the end of the run, and <laughs> I don't know, man. And I, I understand what you're saying, uh, Carson, about how demoralizing and how ugly it is because I don't know, man. Giannis is a fundamentally ugly basketball player, just how he plays. Uh-huh. I just hate seeing... I just I am really rooting against the Bucks. I do not want to see them come out of the East this year. I mm-hmm. It's just sad, man, cuz it it I I feel completely deflated after these last two yeah. games rooting for the Atlanta Hawks. Yeah, I mean, I think the Hawks are the much more likable basketball team aesthetically. What I will say though is when Trey is not creating like that. And this is what we've touched on before. The Hawks have bucket getters but they don't have guys who facilitate for others. And that's what this offense devolved into today. When Trey wasn't having that playmaking impact, the ball just wasn't moving. It was Gallo one-on-one. It was Collins one-on-one. It was Herter touches the ball and immediately shoots it. And 20 assists for the Hawks tonight. Herter leading the pack with seven, which is just kind of weird. And he's a competent facilitator. But again, not the kind of guy you can put the ball into his hands for the majority of the game and say, okay, go make stuff happen. When Bogey isn't getting into that mid-range area, he doesn't have that kind of playmaking. And there are games in which if all these guys are on, even without Trey going off, they can survive. Like, Herter can make tough buckets. Gallo can make tough buckets. So can Collins. So can Lou, of course. So can Bogey. But they're not going to create easy stuff for their teammates. And that is what Trey Young does. And when Trey is in himself, especially physically, because he's just not, again, collapsing the defense, I don't see how you win now three out of four games, which is what they have to do. And so it's speculation we don't know, but it's very, very alarming. I mean, if Trey is not, say Trey's at like 70 to 80% the rest of this series, do they win a game? Uh, I think it's certainly possible, because 70 to 80% means that you can still get to your spots. And I think that, With Trey, again, a lot of his impact is going to be facilitating and making the guys around him better. And he doesn't have to necessarily be in peak athletic form to get into that floater area. So if he's 50%, I think it's a different story because then we're going to see him settle a bunch. We're not going to see him get into that painted area. But if he can approximate his normal self, I think if he just leans a little more on the playmaking, this team can still win a lot of games in this series. But... Again, it just got that much tougher, both losing this game, letting it slip away, and potentially losing peak Trey Young. Cannot overstate how devastating of a single-game outcome this was for the Hawks, who have a ton of fight, who have a ton of guys who can step up, really well-coached, good two-way team, no question about any of that. We certainly know it here on Nurses. We're massive fans of what the Hawks have done, but it's a lot tougher now. All right, what other awards do you have for the Hawks here? Um, so my first, well, actually, this is the, uh, yeah, my first award here for Atlanta, um, <laughs> the kindergarten class award. And uh, I just like to thank, uh, the Atlanta Hawks, uh, crowd, uh, for helping me, uh, you know, learn how to count to 15, uh, every time Giannis went to the line. Um, like honestly, bro, this gives us a few things to touch on. Like one, I just kind of thought it got flat out annoying. I got tired of it really quick Two, It didn't seem like it even worked. Yeah. Giannis missed a free throw every once in a while, but 
it didn't matter. Like, it wasn't really affecting him at all. Um, and I don't know, bro. Like, it, I hate watching Yon. It, it kills so much time. And I know yeah. that's the tired argument about this. It's just frustrating. It slows the game down so much watching Giannis uh, go through this sorted routine. Obviously, it's been working as of recently. This is the best he shot from the line in a minute in a few playoff series. But um, I don't know. It's annoying from uh, from all perspectives, from the Atlanta crowd to Giannis every single time at the line. It's a free throw, bro. Just get it over with. I actually like it from the Atlanta crowd. I mean, I've liked it since the Nets fans started doing it. I think call it when you see it. Get in his head however you can. And he was 6-13 today. Like, I agree with you. I'm not going to say there's a direct causation there. And I actually, out of my own curiosity, did go and time one of his free throws because I saw a report after game one about how the Hawks internally timed him at anywhere from 11.6 to 13.3, I believe it was, which is just ridiculous, of course. And they were upset that the league wasn't calling it. In the NBA's two-minute report, they said, that both free throws that Giannis attempted in the last two minutes should have been 10-second violations. Like, we all know that he's going over every time. But I did think the Hawks fans might have been counting a little bit fast, and they were. I think I got Giannis at 10.76. So he's still over. I think they had him at, like, 12, though, the Hawks fans. But, of course, they are held to no standard of accuracy. I like it. I think it's annoying. At the same time, if you ever called it, I would be upset with that because refs... Don't get in the way of the game there. Like, it's like calling a lane violation in a spot like that. Yes, he's breaking the rule, but it doesn't matter all that much. Maybe call him out on it this offseason and say, okay, if you come back next year and you're still doing this, we're going to have trouble so we can establish a new routine or whatever. But in the conference finals, it's just not that big of a deal in my opinion. All right, so that's all I have for the Hawks. Let's move on to the Bucks and let's start with MVP. Who are you shouting out there? Yeah, I'm going to do the boring, obvious one. Giannis is the MVP of this series. I hate it. I Giannis plays ugly basketball. He's he's not unskilled. Giannis is talented. I got to give him his credit. Like, he's just unstoppable. It's frustrating. Uh-huh. Just barrels into the lane, hits a spin move, bodies a guy. And I don't know, man, it's weird because Brooklyn was able to slow down the tempo enough in certain spots by being physical, by not taking extremely dumb shots. And Trey's, I, I know we've already said it in this show, but Trey's bad shots lead to a lot of fast break points, a lot of just bricks. And the Bucks were able to feast in this game. They were able to feast in game two just off of running in transition. And Giannis has been a huge beneficiary of that. He's been dominating even in half court, uh, in the half court. And when guys are knocking down his shots, he's been a decent playmaking engine as well. Um, Giannis is going to be the best player on a team that goes to the finals. I didn't think we'd be here. Uh, Chris Middleton may single-handedly save Coach Bud's job uh, if they're able to get out of this series. It's Giannis. I'm I'm not happy that I'm saying that for the Bucks. I was hoping it was Middleton or Holiday, but yep, Giannis is a, is is Shaq. I'm gonna shout out all three of the Bucks' best players because I think that they've all done a ton to help them in this series, and I think that Giannis, of course, is the best player of the bunch. Has been the most consistently imposing, but. I think that Drew had that massive game one, even in defeat, that showed what he could do as that shot maker. And then his playmaking and defense has been outstanding throughout. Tennis is a game, as we mentioned, keeping Trey, or maybe it's just Trey's decision for the most part, but he has done his job in that Trey is not consistently getting into that painted area as much as he normally does. And then I don't think we can neglect what we just saw from Chris Middleton, which was 
maybe the best game of his career. I mean, I always think back to that just ridiculous series against the Celtics. Logan, you're shaking your head. What's the best game of Chris Middleton's career? Oh, no, I'm not shaking my head at that. I'll get into Chris Middleton, though. Okay, because I think that for him, he has been so volatile throughout these playoffs. And I mentioned how much he struggled on the road against Brooklyn. This was phenomenal basketball when they needed it most. 38-11-7 and at least 20 of them in the fourth. This is when he's supposed to shine, man. When that difficult shot making out of the mid-range where it doesn't matter if a guy's got a hand in his face from deep, he just knocks it down anyway. Where you see his multifaceted impact with the playmaking, with the competent defense. All of that was out there today. He was fantastic and he has in the past struggled to perform in the clutch at times, but this was a situation in which there was no doubt. It felt like every single one he shot was going to go in. I can only think of one miss from him in the fourth. It was just deflating for the Hawks to see him do that time after time after time. So I don't think that they go up 2-1 to one without any of that trio playing at a high level. Maybe Drew, because again, his best game was in a defeat. But they have all come together and played at a level that we hadn't seen from them all that regularly in these playoffs. And so I think that it's kind of been a group effort. Yes, Giannis is the best, but they certainly aren't winning this game without Middleton. No, you're exactly right. And to be exact, uh, in the fourth, 8 of 13 from the field, 4 of 6 from deep, 20 points in the fourth quarter alone. Middleton was absolutely unconscious. And you say volatile, Carson, and I think that's a very good word for Chris Middleton. I've got a different one. Spotty. And Mm. that is why I'm giving the Polka Dot Man Award to Chris Middleton. Nice. Because, yeah, he is spotty. Games 1 and 2 in this series, 15 points per game on 12 of 36 from the field, 2 of 16 from deep. And, yeah, you said it. Middleton has been spotty his entire tenure here in Milwaukee. Yeah, sometimes he shows up, sometimes he doesn't. When he's on, it's amazing. Because, like you said, we saw tonight especially not only difficult shot making, a lot of really tough playmaking out of the pick and roll. And, yeah, when Middleton is on, he's on, and he is a genuine number two. And he gives me confidence that if he is on for an entire series, that the Bucks can win the finals this year. I'm, he has to show up. I think he's the most important piece of that, but he's spotty. He is, I don't know. He's. I, I will give him his credit for this game. I'll give him credit for coming up big in other moments for Milwaukee, but I just want to see it consistently, man. Yeah. I think you can say the same thing about Drew, who today, I mean, he has the 12 assists, two steals, two blocks, but... Six points on two of 11 shooting. Like, for a team that has three stars, as I said on the last show, very rarely do you see all three of them show up. What, you're saying stars in quotes? Who doesn't make the cut? Middleton, Drew, both of them? Oh, it's Drew, bro. I mean, like, I think... Yeah. Middleton's a borderline star. Like, what, 2013 Drew Holiday, all-star Drew? Like, Drew's been really good, but I don't know if I can put him in star territory, bro. Okay. Semi-star, whatever term you want to use, really good basketball player. You just can't reliably on the tr- rely every night on the trio to perform at their best. But I still think in this series, all three of them have played pretty good basketball. Do all three of them have to play perfect to win the finals? Good question. I think so. I mean, I think they have a long road ahead of them. I think you need big-time shot-making from both Drew and Middleton, and I think that you need Giannis to find a way to maximize his effectiveness in a way that deep into the playoffs we just haven't seen from him historically but we're kind of seeing right now it's been a really good series from him he's only taken seven threes which is always very promising he's gotten to the line a bunch he's taking 8.3 free throws a game that's not a crazy high number for him but he was there 13 times today and I just think has played some pretty damn good basketball all around so 
What's your other award for Milwaukee here? Uh, my final award uh, is David Stern's Worst Nightmare, which is, of course, uh, Milwaukee in the finals. We hate seeing the small market teams get there. Um, <laughs> that's it. Just I've This is a, a basically another way of saying that I love the Atlanta Hawks, but... <laughs> Yeah, man, I'm flopping here, but Trey's Trey's injury makes me want to flip. Um, I, I think that the Hawks are going to take too many bad shots. They're going to put them in precarious positions and open them up to fast break points in the rest of this series. I think this is Milwaukee series to lose, and they just defense matters, and the Hawks just do not have as many defensive difference makers that Milwaukee does. So, mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, my I'm I'm saying the Bucks are going to the finals. Yeah, they probably are, and I think that it's disappointing, not because of the market size. I couldn't care less. I just do not enjoy watching the Bucks play basketball, and if you're a Bucks fan listening to this podcast, I'm very sorry. There's been some outright just disappointment at the fact that you guys are up 2-1 to one right now, and it's a great reward for Giannis, of course, who's been so great for so long, and a team that has been on the brink a few times before. You like to see that. Uh, but there was a really fun story. Still is a really fun story going to Atlanta. I'm not going to flip on any official pick. I'm just going to die on this Hawks Hill, and I'll be very happy to do it. <laughs> I will commit seppuku on this Hawks Hill, and it would be my honor to do so. Seppuku, samurai suicide. Logan, you're not familiar? Stabbing ah. through the midsection of oneself. Yes. With a katana, even. That's how I'm going to go down with this Hawks team, with Trey at my side, with Bogey at my side, and it's going to be a beautiful moment that we share. On the topic of death, I'm going to give out the Crazy Eyes Killa Award to Bobby Portis. <laughs> Crazy Eyes Killa, a rapper from Larry David's Curb Your Enthusiasm. Also, the terrifying man that is Bobby Portis. It's been a pretty great series from him overall. He was really good tonight. And we talked about this before the series, how we both expected him to play more and have a more pronounced impact in this series than he did against the Nets, where he was removed from the rotation in the last few games and just did not have an impact in that series. And tonight you see the value of his versatility, the shot making from the perimeter, the ability to bully guys out of the post and attack switches there, attack smaller guys, show his skill with the jump shooting down there, the hands on defense where he picks up two steals. He just had a really good all-around game, 15 points, plus 17 on the night as far as plus minus. And again, has been consistently producing throughout this series. And to me, is a huge selling point for this Bucks team because with DiVincenzo out, there just aren't that many guys who I trust in this rotation, and Bobby Portis is one of them. And so it's good to see him out there getting significant minutes, playing well, and to me, he's never going to play 30-something minutes a game. Maybe he should, honestly. I mean, I think he's better than P.J. Tucker, not on the defensive end, but is more valuable offensively. But as long as he's getting significant minutes, in that 18 to 20 minute range, I'm happy with it. And I think that he can have an impact on the game because he's a damn good offensive player with, frankly, terrifying eyes. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, when he's knocking down a shot, you have to have him out there. He's also can just shoot over a lot of the Atlanta defense. Um, yeah. And honestly, it's evident that the Hawks offense wants that switch every time down the floor out of the pick and roll. They want that switch on to Trey. They want that switch on to Bogey. I don't really mind it because, I mean, a lot of the times tonight, yeah, like Trey wet up a few shots in his face from 20, you know, 28 plus, but I'll let him have it. Go ahead, yeah. shoot that, Trey. I don't, mm-hmm. I kind of like Bobby on a switch. He's not a terrible perimeter defender. And, uh, yeah, I think it's obvious. I think he has to get way more minutes in this rotation. I don't know how PJ's still starting, to, to be honest with you. 
I guess just experience, defensive value, grit. You know he's going to fight on the glass. And he can knock down an open shot, although he hasn't shot it all that well in these playoffs. But yeah, I love Bobby. I love seeing him get more minutes. I've been a Bobby Portis guy, and I'm glad to see that after he was in a couple of brutal situations from Chicago to Washington to New York, he found his way back to an area in which he could play good, meaningful basketball. All right, so as we wrap things up with this series, we've both given out our awards, but anything else you want to touch on here? You said that you're going to change your prediction. The fully rational thing to do, and especially if Trey is not himself, I just think that Milwaukee has too much in this series unless we see Bogey take it up a notch, Herder take it up a notch. Like They just need so much more punch from guys you expect to deliver who, again, some of them delivered today, some of them didn't. But any other thoughts on this series before we move on? No, but I mean, I think... I think that's right. I think you're there's a path for Atlanta to win this series. Mm-hmm. There's it requires a lot of things going right, like we've yeah. touched on. Herder has to make a lot of difficult shots. Bogey has to step up. I'm not fully out on Atlanta. Like I again, like I think if everything goes right, I think they can win this series, but I just haven't seen enough from them. Uh <sighs> this is so demoralizing. I'm this is hurting my heart. I'm just waiting on the bogey explosion. And if Trey is himself, I do believe they can do it. I think it's possible. Like, I wouldn't have picked it before the series if I didn't think it was possible. And the fact that they're down 2-1 doesn't just override everything that we know this team is capable of. But if Trey is hurt, then yeah, obviously, it's a lot really hard. Okay, I don't want your official prediction, but I do want this. For the rest of this series, over or under one and a half good bogey games? over baby I'm an eternal optimist the law of averages has to come to play here at some point like this is absurd this is so many consecutive bad games that it just has to even out to a certain extent I would think but it is concerning how well Giannis has played and they're gonna need everything to go right not only are they gonna need to play really well on their own end they're gonna need probably a flop or two from Middleton a flop or two from Drew and that kind of stuff can happen that's why I don't think this is over but this was emotionally a deflating game as much as anything. But this is a Hawks team that doesn't really get down on itself, that believes until the very end, that is going to fight and scrap and find a way. And I would be 0% surprised if they win game four. And then, you know, we're right back on even footing here, and we'll see what they can do going forward in that best of three. So with that, let's move on to the series that is a little bit closer to conclusion with the Suns up 3-1 to one on the Clippers heading home now. Let's start with Phoenix. Who has been the MVP for them? thus far in your eyes? Uh, I think you could go with DeAndre Ayton, um, and I think that's a good pick. I think you go with... Uh, I'm going to give another award to Ayton, but I think you could also go with Chris Paul for the two games he's played. The offense has moved so much more fluidly. He's been great moving the rock for them. I'm going to go with Devin Booker, um, and I just frankly think he's been the best player consistently for them when the going gets tough. Outside of, you know, obviously a ugly, I mean, absolutely horrendous game three, uh, D-Book's played about as well as he can. He's making plays for other guys, bridges, finding shooters, uh, about five assists a game consistently for the Suns and 25 a night. Like, he's getting to his spots. And, I mean, these have been a this has been one of the grimiest series I've seen in a yeah. long time. Uh, so, <laughs> like, like, Devin Booker and Paul George have not looked perfect by any metric. Their field goal percentages will tell you that exactly, but... Devin has been a constant in a Suns offense that has been rather shaky uh, with just about everybody else. It's grimy. It has not been pretty, but uh, D-Book has been consistently, uh, I think, this team's best player. Interesting. 
Consistent is not the word I would use to describe Devin Booker in this series. I think that obviously game one was a masterpiece. Game four, he found a way getting to the line to still have his impact as a scorer. But this entire series has just been such a grind. And Book is the most efficient of the three stars in this series. That being him, CP, and PG at 37.5% from the field and like 48% true shooting. Keep in mind, average true shooting percentage this year was 57 it's just unthinkable how gritty this series has been. So I'm going to go to the guy who has helped make it gritty and who has found a way to consistently produce on both ends and do so efficiently on offense. And that is DeAndre Ayton, who has just been there every time. And I would say has been the most consistent player in this series, putting up 20.5 and 13 and a half on 70% shooting. He's been 18 and nine or better every game in this series. And I think obviously has had an offensive impact throughout, has shown some of his skill, some of his overpowering athleticism, his ability to be that high-level role man. But also, after games one through three, when we did our last podcast checking in on these series, I was talking about how he wasn't necessarily changing the game completely defensively and was doing his job while protecting the rim. But because the Clips just didn't have to go inside all that much, they were able to still create some decent offense just really kicking the ball around the perimeter, knocking down threes, driving and kicking, all of that. And then game four, I think, Aiden just took it up another level and was phenomenally impactful in that game. The clip shot two of eight inside six feet against him. He blocked four shots, grabbed 22 boards. And this was a game where for the Clippers, nothing was falling from beyond the arc. They were five of 31 from deep, which is just so abnormal for them. And if they tried to find something inside because the threes weren't falling, they just could not whatsoever. Aiton was there to meet them. He was there to alter the shot if they did take one. Or they just had to take a tough mid-range pull-up, which we saw Reggie Jackson and PG do several times over in that one. Or, again, kick out. But when guys weren't knocking down shots, the drive and kick just was not working. So they had nothing for him. They had no answer for him defensively. And then on offense, he, again, has just been able to clean up on the glass, find those easy opportunities off the roll, knock down a face-up, or turnaround jumper or two, and was just in a game that was so defined by how much the best players struggled, that being game four, the consistently dominant force. So this is incredible from him. We talk about it, it seems, every few games, every time we do a pod about how great he's been, how consistent he's been. This is not a DeAndre Aiden that we had seen previously. If you are not somebody who watches the Suns a bunch during the regular season, don't think that this is what he's always like, because he's always really good defensively, and that never changes, but to be this consistently aggressive and efficient offensively and productive, like this is just the best he's ever been and hopefully is the player he is going forward because this is a hell of a third guy, a hell of a third guy, especially when you have the supporting pieces around him that the Suns do. And I continue to be amazed by what he's doing. And to me, he's been the MVP because the guys who are predicated upon scoring and doing all that haven't been able to do their job efficiently. He has time and again. Yeah, um, the award that I was going to give to Aiden, I think you summed it up pretty well. Uh, the Trench Warrior, just junkyard mm. dog award. Uh, Aiden's gritty, and he's playing like a star, like a genuine yeah. third star. And it's it's weird because he's not the most versatile offensive player. Like, he, he hasn't come along with that shot yet, but he's so dominant on the interior in the post, off of the short roll as a lob threat. And the big thing is just defensively. Um, and when he's like... I think the big thing, man, is just when he's efficient with his touches. Like, when he is, when that's all he's taking is those inside looks, not a post fade, not a jump shot, when he's taking these interior looks and then 
<laughs> he's been an anchor on that side. I don't know, man. I'm I'm shell shocked uh, every time I've seen Aiden in these playoffs on the defensive end because it's just. I just never thought it was going to come. I just mm-hmm. never thought we were going to see genuine star Aiden, and it's something that makes me think that um, his ascent has makes me think that, yeah, Phoenix is the favorite to win the finals. He's the main reason why. Yes, Chris Paul changed the complexity of this team and this offense, and they desperately need him, but defensively you need a force like DeAndre Ayton to win a title, and <laughs> it's it's amazing. I didn't think he'd ever be this consistent. Yeah, he's holding opponents 8.6% below their normal field goal percentage inside of six feet in these playoffs. It's what they've needed from him, and it's what they've gotten from him both defensively and offensively, and beyond impressive. If this was, say this is the this uh, this playoff run is the barometer, the measuring stick um, for Aiden's defense. If you were just basing it off of what you've seen from these playoffs, where does he rank as like a defensive big man among the rest of the league in your opinion probably top five but I think I would have had him there before these playoffs like my question was never about his defense it was just about what he could be consistently offensively and that's where he's been I would say surprisingly impressive in these playoffs the defensive dominance has been relatively expected but it was outstanding in game four even a level above I think that after the top tier of guys who are just mind-blowing rim protectors like a Gobert a Capella and then I guess you throw Miles Turner in there. But honestly, I don't know if I want Miles Turner more than him in a playoff series. Like, he is more mobile than a lot of those guys. Obviously, Bam is the ideal playoff five because of how easily you can switch out onto the perimeter. And maybe Aiden will ride out my top five there. It'll be those five in some order, him, Turner, Bam, and then Gobert and Capella. Oh, that's tough because then I don't have Embiid in there. You know what? I'm booting Turner. I'm booting Turner, and uh, I'm throwing Aiton in there because I think that he's just an incredibly valuable playoff performer, and it's been so refreshing and encouraging to see him not only do it, but never drop off, man. Like, the LA series could have been a one-off with his two-way impact, and it has been far from it. Like, he didn't have the same scoring impact against the Nuggets, but we know what he did defensively to Nikola Jokic, making life as hard on him as anybody could, and he's been right back to the two-way dominance in this series. Just Awesome stuff from him. So you've given out your two awards for the Suns. I'll give out the Basketball Fans Make No Sense Award. And I guess I'm giving this award to basketball fans, but it's about Chris Paul. Because obviously the way that people perceive things is everything. Perception is reality. And we have decided to give Chris Paul a pass on everything and celebrate him endlessly and just say, You are the best thing to ever happen because we all want him to win a ring. Of course, it's natural, but this is his lowest scoring postseason ever on his worst postseason true shooting percentage in nine years. And you can say, well, a huge part of that is he didn't have a shoulder for the majority of that first round series against the Lakers. Totally fair, but they were still able to win that series and people didn't use that as a point to say, oh, look at how exceptional this team can be even without Chris Paul, which by the way, they have been all year with or without him on the floor. And then he was phenomenal against the Nuggets. We all rained praise on him, deservedly so. But he just went 11 of 41 in a two-game stretch in the conference finals healthy. Like, yeah, he had a layoff because of COVID. But everything is rattling out for him. He is missing everything. And the Suns lost game three and very nearly could have lost game four. Like, they played their worst offensive game of the year. It just happened to be that the Clippers topped them in that respect. And it feels like nobody's being critical of right now when... 
Chris Paul is a guy who has been unfairly criticized as a playoff underperformer when he's never really been one. And I've always been a huge advocate of how much better he's been in the playoffs than he gets credit for. Like, you go back through history, the things that he gets ragged on for. 2015, when they blow that 3-1 to lead to the Rockets. He was great in the big moments. He put up 57 points, 21 assists in game six and seven combined on 50% shooting. In game sevens throughout his career, he's 21, six and 10 on 46, 37, 87 splits. When his teams have lost in the first round, he's put up 22 and eight and a half on 50% from the field. So he's never been the playoff underperformer that people paint him to be. But now that he is struggling, nobody cares because we all love him now and he has a great team around him who can pick up the slack. Like, I'm not saying this should be rag on Chris Paul Day. I just genuinely don't understand. I guess it's because we've all come to terms with the fact that the Suns are probably going to win the title and they're going to get out of this series no matter what. And again, because he's the old, lovable, fluffy guy now. But it's just so weird. People don't make any sense, Logan. Does this make any sense to you? Well, no, and it just it, it, it makes me think that <laughs> earlier in this season, people painting Chris Paul to be the MVP just because of how cultish the Suns felt Mm -hmm. because it was the hot trend to hop on. And like you said, now that we're coming to the realization that the likely fact is that the Suns are going to win it all, oh no, let's flip the script because uh, it's the popular census opinion now. Mm -hmm. I I hate NBA fans. Dude, it's just like... I said it. What has changed to where now we pretend that nobody criticized him for this stuff when he was great? Like, he was terrifying from the perspective of a Warriors fan in 2018. He was an assassin from the mid-range, as he has been his entire career, and they fall short there, and sure, he was hurt, and that's not like the pinnacle of what people hold against him, but it's just so weird to me how this has changed, and I believe he is going to be better. I don't know how he could be worse, but dude, 11 of 41, and your team has consecutive terrible (laughs) offensive games, and nobody says a word, nobody makes a peep, very, very strange to me. Very strange. Just considering how he's been treated historically, which has been unfairly negative. Very weird to me. All right. Do you have anything else to say on that? I was going to ask, do you think a ring changes how we look at Chris Paul historically, like his legacy? Absolutely. And it should. I mean, he's going to be, in my opinion, the second best player on a title team. He's a top 20 player in basketball, which is crazy to do at 37 years old and six feet tall. Basically unheard of. But my point is, His legacy should have already been much more positive than it was. And this, to me, is not the epitome of Chris Paul playing unbelievable basketball, his best ever, because the last two games, he's been bad. In the first series, he wasn't a factor, and they still found a way to win. And this is the time that everybody's raining praise on him because we view things as being so incredibly results-oriented. It's you won or you didn't, and it's not about, oh, Blake got hurt, or Blake didn't play well in this spot, or... Jamal Crawford shot 6 of 18 and nobody else could make a shot around you. It's you lost. And now it's not. DeAndre Ayton is unbelievable. Campaign can put up 29-9 in a game when you're out and pick up the slack when you're not out there. Jay Crowder can make big-time plays. Macau Bridges is changing the game defensively and knocking down open shots. It's just you won. Very strange how we view the world. Very strange. All right. With that ran out of my system, let's move on to the Clippers, who are on their heels here now. But who has been the MVP of this series to you for that? I'm going to give out uh, another boring one. Uh, the MVP has been Paul George, and I think you can give it uh, to the playoff hero uh, of this postseason and Reggie Jackson. I think that's mm-hmm. a logical pick. I'm hoping that's who you went with, Carson. I didn't want to steal your thunder uh, by going with your boy. Um, what PG is doing, and I know it's been on terrible efficiency. It, 
he's in such a tough circumstance. It's excruciating right now. And I know he's not shooting well. Again, 36% from the field, 28% from deep, under 70% from the line. But just the burden that he is tasked with every night of being the sole offensive engine and creator for this team is super hard. For him to be putting up nearly 28-6, and six, again, the... <laughs> The percentages aren't aren't kind to him, but he's in an excruciating situation as he is doing everything he can to put the Clippers in a position to win each and every night. And like, I want to give him his credit. Like, so many of these games are one possession or two possession away from swinging the exact other way. Like, mm-hmm. Paul George has put this team repeatedly in a position to win when they're without their best player. So, uh, to me, yeah, it's boring going with Paul George, but. Uh, He's played really great uh, for the situation that he has been put in. It's just so tough because I agree with you in that he's found a way to have an impressive impact on this series. I mean, he's still putting up 27.5, and 10-6, but it's just tough because the shots aren't falling, as you mentioned. I mean, he's at 36-28-70 shooting splits, and he's found that way. He's been to the line 43 times, has made some really heads-up passes, and we know that he's had this evolution as a playmaker, but there was a full court pass he made to Zubats in that game for that was just so aware. Like, he is reading the court at a different level right now, and he needs to be, because if he wasn't, as you said, this team would be out of it. But it's just tough when you're 28% from deep, when you go 5 of 20 in a game for like that, and it feels like he's just getting tough shots. Like, he's not getting the easy stuff reliably. A lot of it is from beyond the arc, as it always is for him, but when they aren't falling... He's just not going to be on. He's not going to be at his best. So I admire what he has done. But at the same time, this is a tough time to have one of your worst shooting series ever. This is the same percentage from the field that he shot in that series against the Mavs last year when he was crucified. And when everybody was celebrating him, obviously living up hilariously to the playoff P nickname. And now he's in a completely different role. He's having a much more pronounced impact, but the shots still aren't falling. And the free throws... Man, Paul George could have changed the series with a couple free throws. Like, Game 4 was really frustrating to watch at the end. Not the kind of basketball you like to see because of how much of it was just intentional fouling from both sides. But when he misses one, and they could have been within one point, and all of a sudden now, they don't have that opportunity anymore. And already in this series, we saw him miss the consecutive free throws that could have put them up as much as three against the Suns in Game 2, which they end up losing. It's just heartbreaking, dude. I want him to find a way to outgrow this reputation he has earned, and it's not going to happen if he can't knock down shots that he has to make for them to win these games because you mentioned it. They've been right in it. They've been that close, and these are the margins that are holding this team back right now. So my MVP is actually not going to be Reggie Jackson. It's going to be team defense here in LA. Not Zubots, but Zubots is a major part of it, and I think that you can look at this on really all levels of this defense because you have... Pat Bev, Terrence Mann, PG, hounding the Suns' guards. I continue to be impressed by what we've seen from Pat Bev. Not a Pat Bev guy, as I said last episode, but man, is he working right now, recovering, moving those feet, active hands. Terrence Mann has been admirable on Chris Paul for the majority. But I think that also what Zubats has done is just outstanding. And I think what we've seen is that within 15 feet, with that 7'4 wingspan of his, that length, he is perfectly competent on Chris Paul. And yeah, CP is still getting decent looks off from the mid-range, and a lot of them are just rattling out. Like, he has just been off shooting in these two games. 
But we know that he can protect the interior. He can protect the rim. In the regular season, he held opponents 12% below their normal field goal percentage within six feet. The thing is, he's just not mobile, really. And I think that if you are Chris Paul, that's what you need to attack. Like, get that pick and roll going early in the possession and then find a way to hold that switch, bring Zubats out to the three-point line, and then attack. Because CP, his primary weapon is not getting all the way downhill, of course. He loves taking those fallaways. But dude, when a guy can get his long arms in your face, that's maybe not as ideal anymore, especially when in space, like, he is helpless. We've seen Book cook him when he brings him out to the three-point line. We saw Chris Paul cook him the one time that he did that in game four. So I think that that's how they have to attack. It's make him guard you in space on the perimeter, not within 15 feet where all he has to do is get a hand in your face because he can do that. But he's done it admirably nonetheless. I did not expect... Chris Paul to struggle like this. I thought that this would maybe be Jokic-esque and that you are just dropping him out of the pick and roll and CP is hunting those switches and cooking in that mid-range area time after time after time. Hasn't been the case. The shots aren't falling. Maybe they start to fall more, but just overall for this team, when you can hold Book to 37.5% shooting, when you can hold CP to 26.8% shooting, you are doing your job. On the defensive end, it's just that nothing has been going offensively for the Clips and that's why we've seen this play out as it has where they're down 3-1. to one. But defensively, they have been outstanding and have reached a level that in the regular season, I'm not sure they fully showed that they could reach. And I didn't expect it to be with Zubats at center. I thought it would be with Ibaka out there, if anything. But they've pulled it off here. And I think you highlighted exactly what the Suns need to do uh, to counteract what he's been doing. When Luka got that switch on Zubac in the first series, he lit him up mm-hmm. every single possession. I mean... Just drag him out to the three-point line. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, this leads me into uh, <laughs> my award for Evita Zubac, the Diet DeAndre Ayton Award, because um, I think he's he's done exactly that. Uh, he's mm-hmm. played just as just as effective defense uh, as Ayton has, um, just to a lesser extent because he's not as athletic, he's not as mobile. But um, I mean, I, I wish I had the exact uh, plus-minus numbers. I mean, they've gone up. Uh, since we last yes. gave them, right? like Dramatically. I think he's plus 25 in this series, whereas he was way negative, like minus 30 per 100 in those first two series. He's gone from being like unplayable to pivotal. Yeah, and uh, it hasn't really like directly worked. Like I don't think he's a good one-on-one matchup for DeAndre Ayton. I think very mm-hmm. few big men are because he's so strong and so physical, but... When you can make life this hard again on two of the best difficult shot makers in basketball, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd hope you'd earn a trip to the finals. It doesn't look like the situation. Yeah. Avita Zubac at least deserves a cookie, though. He's balled out. Um, he's had a great series, and I don't think they'd be here without him. No, he deserves a cookie and a half. And again, we were considering before this series, what's their best option? Is it boogie? Is it going small? It's clearly been Zubac. He has played big minutes. He has more than hung his own. And uh, some of the best basketball he's played, I mean, three straight double-doubles, efficient offensively, but the defense to me has been most surprising. I do wonder, though, if in Game 5 we see a classic Chris Paul show like we saw against the Nuggets where he is, again, as we've said, bringing Zubats out to that three-point line and then it's just too quick for him there and too deadly. But we haven't seen it yet. He has held his own and has done everything he can to keep the clips in this series. They just haven't had the offense. And... Part of the reason they haven't had the offense, Logan, is because of the recipient of my second award. 
I'm giving the bad Marcus Morris award to Marcus Morris. I'm sure you're going to be thrilled about this. Let's go! Yeah, there you are, jumping out of your seat. You hate Marcus Morris. And I have generally been the pro-Marcus Morris person on this team just because I think that when he's knocking down those shots from beyond the perimeter, he can be a really effective basketball player. But what we've seen in this series is he's taken 34 shots. 22 of them have been inside the arc, and he's 7 of 22 on them. Like, when he stops being spot-up shooter Marcus Morris and decides, I'm actually post-up Marcus Morris, I'm mid-range shot maker Marcus Morris, for a possession or two, you know, he can get off a decent shot if you need it as a bailout at the end of the shot clock or whatever. But overall, he's 37% for mid-range in these playoffs. He's 5 of 17 on turnarounds. And opposite that, he was a 47% three-point shooter in this regular season. He shot better on threes than he did on twos. So just stick to those looks. And it's hard because the Clippers do need somebody to create non-Paul George offense. And that has been the dilemma for them. It's Reggie has such a burden on him and has handled it admirably. And we've seen other guys try to manufacture those possessions. But really anybody other than PG or Reggie Jackson, I'm not all that comfortable with. And Marcus Morris has been another one of those guys who, when he has to get his own shot, has struggled. And it's part of the reason why the Clippers may just not have enough firepower to really hang in this series, unless they start shooting the lights out from deep again, which we just haven't seen through four games of this one. Yeah, no, I think Marcus Morris has to... uh has to stick to his role. And I mean, like, honestly, with what we have seen from Marcus Morris in the playoffs thus far, I don't, like, he's taking the third most shots per game on this team. I don't want that to be the case. There's a lot of other guys I wish that they would let try to step up uh, before Marcus Morris. Who? I mean, give give Terrence Mann some more burn. Give Luke Kennard some more burn. Yeah. Let Rondo get a little more burn. I mean, like... Rondo's shooting 67% from deep right now. Yeah, it's a really small sample size, but I mean, damn, dude. Marcus Morris has sucked all playoffs long. And like, yeah, he's had a couple of good games here where I've apologized for him not showing up. Marcus Morris has consistently played like dog doo-doo, and I'm tired of acting like he hasn't. All right, Marcus Morris is a bum. He should not be relied upon. And, oh. I'm tired of it, bro. I hate Marcus Morris. <laughs> it's such a selective memory, Logan. I don't know how many times we need to go through how huge he came up for them no! in a couple of no! massive games. Yes, yes. I think that the only guy who I would really like to see get more touches, more opportunities to create than him is Luke Kennard, and that is never going to happen because they hate him and they just want him to be a spot-up shooter. Go watch what he did in Detroit, anybody who was not watching the Pistons last year, which I understand. The man can run, pick, and roll. He can pass. He can get to his floater. He's a damn good basketball player who deserved the money that they paid him, and he has not had the chance to show it. But I don't know that Marcus Morris is the one guy to blame. I mean, he trusts his shot out of the post, I just don't trust it quite as much as he does. Well, and I think the most frustrating thing about Kennard, bro, is he has shown flashes of it repeatedly out here in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. and they just don't want to give him that leash. But, nah, bro. I, Mar I mean, Marcus Morris isn't the one just to directly blame. It has been a tough series for everybody, except Reggie Jackson. Um, <laughs> it's been It's been a tough series for a lot of guys out here, but still, man, like, is yeah, I mean Marcus Morris out of guys who are getting constant minutes is shooting the lowest field goal percentage and the lowest percentage from deep 
uh, in this series. So, and, and again, like I know we said, I know I said this in our last pod, but uh, again, in games as tight as these, just a few more open shots that you were hitting, or a couple shots that you choose, again, like these tough post shots or trying to do too much, a few other possessions that go the other way. And the Clippers have a win, and that's how you swing a series. And Marcus Morris hasn't done it this season, and I'm done. I don't want to give him any more credit, Carson. <laughs> I'm done apologizing to Marcus Morris. All I'm saying is this has been a tough series for everybody. Like, even Reggie, the immortal Reggie Jackson, he's got more turnovers than assists here. He's had a couple reckless possessions. He's only 45% from the field, 33% from deep, which is not the efficiency he was at coming into this series. Like, he's scoring 21 and a half a game. He's doing his thing compared to the pack. But it's been a tough series, and uh, I would not be surprised if in Game 5, Marcus Morris makes seven threes, seven of ten threes, and he is the reason that they win the game. That will never surprise me. So, is he a multifaceted game changer? No, that's not what you expect him to be. When he tries to be that, he can disappoint you, but... I would not be surprised again if he got back on the horse. But through four games, he has not been what they needed him to be. 6.3 a game out of him on 29% shooting, 25% from deep, just not good enough. And that's been the thing for the Clippers, man. They just have not had enough offense. And nobody's been able to really step up and fill that void except for Reggie. And then I guess you give some credit to Zubots. Marcus Morris is going to make me eat my words again. I don't care. I'm used to it at this point. I think that that would be fantastic. If they come back from 3-1 to one down, he averages 20 a game in the last three Oh, nights. stop. Stop. I just wouldn't be surprised, man. I would not be surprised. So, what else do we have going on with this series? I mean, we've given out our awards, but it feels like we're just marching towards the inevitable at this point. The Clippers are finally starting to feel the absence of Kawhi, and with everything they've been able to do defensively, they haven't been able to manufacture the offense. PG's laboring. Guys aren't making shots from the perimeter. And Suns have two of three games at home here, up three to one. They're the better team. Do you think it's closed out in five? Do you think the Clippers continue to put up a fight? Or what are you just expecting overall? Uh, you know, like you said, I wouldn't be surprised if the Clippers came back and made this a battle. They've done it in these very playoffs. But again, that was with Kawhi Leonard. And without Kawhi Leonard, I do not trust this team to manufacture enough offense to make this a competitive series. The Suns have the best two shot makers in this series. They've got the best pick and roll, man. They've got the best two spot up shooters, in my opinion. They're just better. And yeah. uh, it's sad, but yeah, I think, I think it's probably, if I had to place a bet, if I had to put some money down, I'd say this gets closed out next game and Phoenix just ends it. Mm-hmm. I am not going to bet on single-game outcomes here because of what the Clippers can do shooting that can swing and determine any individual game. And by the way, the Suns are up 3-1 to one, having had really no impact from beyond the arc. I mean, you have 33 total made threes out of 110 attempts, 30% from deep, just a little over eight makes per game. And that is part of what makes them so deadly. Like, they have guys who can knock down big shots. They're an efficient three-point shooting team normally, but they don't rely on it certainly as much as a lot of other teams out there and their three most productive offensive players do the majority of their work inside of the arc even campaign is a guy who loves to get into that painted area and again doesn't need the threes to fall for him to be productive so they have just found a way they're a team that finds a way book has not been his best certainly cp has been downright bad through two games and they didn't even have him for the first two every game has been a grind every game has been close 
and they are the ones sitting up 3-1, to one, and that's a testament to what they've done this entire season. They've been more durable, they've been tougher, they've been more consistent, more reliable, and they have just found a way every time out. So, I don't know that I have all that much more to say about this. I think that legacies are going to be made in these finals. And for Book, a guy who was derided as a losing player for no good reason early on, an empty stats guy, for Chris Paul, who has always had the tools to be the best player on a damn good team and was many times over, but again, was unfairly criticized due to results that were often out of his hands. There's an opportunity for redemption, an opportunity these guys aren't going to miss out on for Aiton, who his legacy through a couple years was being the guy who was taking over Luka. I mean, maybe it was more Marvin Bagley's legacy, but it was partly Aiton's legacy as well. Campaign, who was shoved out of the league. Cam Johnson, who obviously was considered a massive reach at the 11th pick. Macau Bridges, who was hilariously traded from his hometown Sixers after he thought he was going there. Jay Crowder, journeyman. Dario Saric, maybe considered a disappointing lottery guy. Torrey Craig, traded for money at this deadline. I'm going down the whole roster. Let's see some Javon Carter minutes, because that's another guy who just plays with grit out there. Let's see some Jalen Smith minutes, so he can prove already in year one that he's not actually a disappointing lottery pick. Everybody on this Suns team, like actually, I went down and looked through everybody who played in their rotation, and I didn't feel like I was really reaching for any storylines there. Like, we have dudes with chips on their shoulders, and they're going to find a way to do it. They're going to get out of this series, and then you just got four to go, and man, crazy to see them in this spot, but very well-deserved. Yeah, and I mean, uh, Devin Booker, too. Uh, another unfairly criticized, you say, because of results, purely. Yeah. Like, if exactly, you watch man. the dude, you would know he's not an empty numbers guy. Um, okay, now the true test. What's the storyline for Abdul Nader? I gotta know. You know, that is the only guy, I think, on the roster whose name I did not mention. For Abdul, I guess it's about representing Northern Illinois with proud, with pride. Uh, well, no, he'll be the first Egyptian player to win a championship. That's huge. That's massive. Putting the country on his back. <laughs> Everybody's got something to prove here. You didn't mention Etwan Moore. Etwan Moore. Man, so much to prove for Etwan Moore. I mean, a guy who... I don't know what to say about Etwan Moore. Honestly, I mean, this is the least relevant he's been on a team that I can remember. Um, Etwan Moore. Well, you know, I think a lot of people said throughout that era of Pelicans basketball that... An Anthony Davis, Etwan Moore duo just isn't enough to put them over the top with Omar with Omer Ashik as a third guy. And I think that he's actually proving that wrong now and is proving that you can win a title with him on your roster. And that's the storyline for him. He is doing in Phoenix what he could not do in New Orleans. There you go. Everybody's got something. Eloquently put. I, I think I think we got some video content for today, Carson. Yeah. Maybe we do. At the buzzer. Maybe I got us some video content there. But I think that basketball-wise, we've said what needs to be said about this series. I don't think there is an adjustment that can be made for the Clippers. I don't think there is a personnel change that can be made for them. I think it is going to come down to making shots. And I think that they will make enough shots to win a game. They could win two even, but three in a row is a lot to ask. And I don't think the Suns are going to let that happen to them, given all the determination in winning basketball we've seen from them throughout this year. So... Conference finals are interesting, man. We saw definitely some big changes in momentum these past couple days. A couple of grinded out games, as has been the theme for all of these teams throughout these playoffs. 
and it's going to be fun to see how it plays out. It may feel like things are mostly over for the Clippers, but they can still make it interesting, and I certainly don't think that Bucks hawks is over as deflating of an individual game as this may have been and as much as it feels that the tides have changed. So that will do it for us here today. Hopefully you enjoyed this one. If you did, you can go ahead and check out everything else that we do here at Nerd Sesh. If you're on our YouTube channel, you can stick around here, check out our full podcast, which we post the video of uh, to this account. You can also see the kind of video breakdown content that we do. Last week, I did a video on Reggie Jackson, how he has been the unexpected hero of these playoffs. Should be coming out with one very soon as well. I'm hoping to get a video done tomorrow, so expect to see that in your feed. Also, if you just want to consume this in audio form, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your stuff. You may be listening there already, but that's where you can find it. You can follow us on Twitter at nerd underscore sesh, on Instagram and TikTok at nerd sesh. And with that, as always, I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.